0: The second part is moving into areas that more or less fall under the heading of, excuse me, of... Um,
1: there um, is the microphone. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drook. I'm Nate Silver. And, and this... this- is not exactly not model, model talk. talk. <laughs> <laughs> we are taking the opportunity today to open up the mailbag and answer some questions that listeners have on their minds about politics and polling and whatever else. And I guess we shouldn't really call this model talk because that's not what it is, Nate. But I don't know that mailbag talk has that much of a ring to it. Do you have any thoughts on what we should call this? That's
0: just a pressure. You should tell me ahead of time. I mean, it's kind of uh, 20 questions with Nate
1: and Galen. 20 questions. Okay, I like that. Although I think, let me see how many questions we have here. Ooh, we have 18. Yeah, that's pretty. We'll, we'll round it up to 20. I'm sure there's like, there's actually some follow-ups in here. First question is, Nate, how are you? It's, it's been a minute. You were out this past week. I was out the week before. I was in Mexico. You were in Miami, just like ships crossing in the middle of the night. The last time I checked in on you, you had like some new news. You're writing a book. What's going on?
0: Yeah, I've been uh, taking advantage of my vaccinated status to do some travel, but also I uh, have reached agreement with Penguin Press, which is my publisher for Signal the Noise, to work on a second book, which is tentatively entitled On the Edge, and then there's some subtitle, which I forget.
1: Wait, what? But it's a book. But you already forgot it? Let me look it up. I know it's on the internet. It's called... On the Edge, How Successful Gamblers Think and What It Tells Us About Navigating Risk. Okay, so what what is the book actually about? It's kind
0: of about that. It's a fairly descriptive title. So as people know, I have a lot of fanny and kind of a background in poker, a lot of friends who are into sports betting and things like that. And so the book basically is in three parts, where, where number one, we look at what Things people would traditionally agree are gambling. So like poker and sports betting are the two main examples. I should say these are skilled forms of gambling, right? Where you can, at least in theory, have an edge. And these are now things that are very data-driven and rooted in game theory. And there's all types of stuff that I think 5 theory readers will find fascinating. The second part is moving into areas that more or less fall under the heading of uh, investing or speculation. So talking about like crypto and real estate, the art market, day trading, which is kind of all these things are very much- NFTs. NFTs, I mean, that's the intersection of all of this, but also like, do hedge funds really have an edge or are they just kind of getting lucky? Is venture capital really contributing
1: anything or- Do you have an early sense? Are hedge funds worth anything? The
0: very few initial interviews I've done tend to be that it's pretty hard to tease out skill from hedge funds, but you probably can from VC firms. That's kind of my very, very least prior, but that might prove to be- very wrong, right? I mean, one of the things is, you know, if you're making bets, I mean, it's kind of hard to measure performance. It's kind of in some ways the same thing that is true with like our presidential election model. You kind of only get one election every four years, or so a lot of different ways to measure it. And so, when you're dealing with things that are very long term, and you know, if you're investing in a hundred companies, and one of those turns into a unicorn, then your portfolio looks vastly different than if none of them turn into a unicorn. And so, it's going to look at that. But like, as compared to signal the noise, it's A little bit more hands-on in terms of, like, how do people who work in these fields think? Because when I talk to poker players or sports bettors, we kind of have a lot of language in common. We have a lot of habits in common. So it's trying to, like, give you sort of an insider's view of how that looks. I mean, I think a lot of material on gambling is written from outside journalists who may be very good journalists, but I kind of don't get the mentality, and I come from that mentality. It's kind of trying to explain that from a point of view where I kind of have lived inside that universe and also have broken through the bubble somehow <laughs> and then live outside of it. And so kind of after introducing all these people who I still have to meet, you know, I've done 2% of the interviews so far that I plan to do. Yeah. Then we'll kind of look at risk in society at large. So um, so COVID, COVID is yeah. a good example of how do people look at risk in real world settings? What mistakes may have been made? So I'll talk to lots of epidemiologists and public health professionals I mean, because it's a book, you have to get really deep here. But look at how much is risk taking intrinsic to human nature? How much is it intrinsic to capitalism? I want to talk to people who do like things that involve tremendous amounts of risk that aren't gambling. So like, for example, like extreme sports climbers and stuff like that. You know, I want to talk to like Marxist historians about (laughs) what role does risk play in capitalism. And so just I want to get really kind of weird. But in some sense, the the book is trying to say, OK, look at people who are skilled at taking risks for a living, which is a pretty unusual enterprise. And like, what habits do they have? And how many of them would be applicable outside of their domains? And how many would get you in trouble? So for hmm. example, I have a reputation for being a little bit contrarian, for example. No. Right? <laughs> but that's actually very common, I think, for people who are in activities where you're trying to beat the market. So you're trying to figure out, okay, where is the market wrong? Because I don't want the market average return. If you're an average poker player, the house wants money from you. How can I differ from like the population in ways that are smart or what things are people misperceiving? And so I think successful gamblers tend to be very contrarian and that may or may not be good for them necessarily if they're in other types of fields. On the other hand, gamblers are almost invariably very good if they're successful gamblers at like working off limited information. You stand on the poker table, game of incomplete information, but you kind of know how much to infer from not just someone's betting patterns, but, you know, if you're at a live poker game from how they're behaving, you know not to overweight it, you know not to underweight it, but you can make decisions from incomplete information really well, which I would say is like something that would benefit all of society, right? If we had the CDC or the FDA or our politicians under COVID being able to do the best they can under incomplete information, instead of saying wait for the data to come in, which is implicitly a decision to do nothing. It's still a decision. I think we may have made better decisions at the start of the pandemic. So it's, again, trying to like, in some ways explain (laughs) myself and the people I know, not in a way that's going to be, I think, purely uncritical by any means at all, but like explain these kind of characters, some of whom are kind of degenerate (laughs) gambling types, some of whom are extremely straight-laced and everything in between, but explain these characters to, to a broader set of
1: readers. Keep us updated on how the progress is going. I know you don't have a published date yet, but of course, keep us surprised, and we'll continue talking to you throughout this whole process. So if you have any updates for us, definitely let us know. We can check in on 20 questions. So the first question for today follows up on our conversation from Monday's podcast, which was about this YouGov poll where it's asking Americans how they would do in a fight against a bunch of different animals. I was talking with Jeffrey and Sarah on Monday about this and <laughs> Jeffrey and Sarah suggested that men were overestimating their ability to take on animals in particular, when it came to geese and medium sized dogs, We got a lot of feedback on the idea that men were overestimating their ability to take on geese. I was kind of skeptical of that take. I would like to note So the poll found that 51% of women and 71% of men said that they could fight a goose unarmed. But um, Amy asks, would the 538 team really just lie down and allow a 12-pound goose to murder them? Does Nate Silver think he could take on a goose? (laughs) When 538 political staffers have to go outside, (laughs) does he defend you? (laughs) (laughs) So Nate, do you think you could take on a goose?
0: I haven't encountered a lot
1: of geese. I think I could, I mean,
0: my problem with this question is like, I'm not sure what like a fight, is it like a fight to the death?
1: Yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, there's no, it's not like a boxing match. There's no- And the goose is
0: trying to kill you? Yeah. I think I could kill a goose.
1: Yeah, okay. So really what I'm setting up here is that, as I mentioned, we got a lot of feedback on this one. And one note in particular from a wildlife biologist named Daniel. Daniel writes, Hello, Galen. I'm a professional wildlife biologist. And I think I can speak to the serious issue of the survey re-fighting wild animals. I even have a scar on my arm given to me by a goose about 20 years ago. In Osh. general, men indeed do overestimate their fighting ability. Cobras, chimpanzees, not a chance. Wolf, highly unlikely. But strangely, Sarah and Jeffrey underestimated their ability against geese. Yes, geese are nasty creatures, but they're not that big. Birds usually look bigger than they are. It's the feathers. A motivated, healthy adult should be able to defeat a goose with a couple of swift kicks. Eagles are another animal people greatly overestimate. They have a large wingspan, so they appear big, but they generally weigh less than 15 pounds. In a fight, a human would get seriously effed up, but a good punch to the midsection would probably end it for the eagle. Hollow bones. That that was our message from Daniel. I don't know if that helps us clarify whether or not YouGov's poll was a good use of polling or bad use of polling. Maybe it's a good use of polling in that it gives us some sense of people are not that familiar with wild animals or their ability to fight them. I don't know. I mean, again, like, so
0: I'm looking at this now, only 72% of people think they could beat a rat in a fight. So that means 28% of people think they could not beat a rat in a fight. And I think people are like, underestimating size and weight. I mean anything in the rodent family, any any animal or birds rather. I think I think the birds are in general going to be beatable in a fight.
1: Well, I think what's weird here is that they underestimate themselves on the smaller animals and overestimate themselves on the bigger animals. Yeah. Right, like too much mean 16% of men are saying that they could beat a wolf. I don't know about that, right? Yeah. Okay. Too much mean reversion. I guess that's... So is this a good use of polling or a bad use of polling, Me.
0: It's a hashtag slow news day use of polling. So it's (laughs) forgiven.
1: Okay. Moving on. Chris asks, is there any way to tell polling-wise if people are more or less politically engaged since Trump left office? If less, how has the party's behavior this year so far been influenced by it?
0: I don't think there's a particular question right now that would be super useful for measuring engagement. We found the best way empirically to measure this is when you kind of ask people, are you more excited or less excited than usual about this upcoming election? I don't think pollsters have begun to ask that yet with respect to next year's midterm, and it would be a little early to ask that yet. I mean, certainly my prior is that enthusiasm was extremely high under Trump, that there is less drama under Biden. I mean, I think there are lots of reports of TV ratings being down relative to Trump. I mean, Trump was a big outlier. You know, on the other hand, we had, like, super high turnout in the Georgia runoffs, although, again, that was when Trump was in office still. A big question is, like, will Democrats suffer from the blah, lack of passion that they suffered from the last time they won the presidency in 2010? Lots of excitement over Obama, a very different election in 2020, and then huge enthusiasm gap in 2010. I tend to think that they won't. suffer from that problem. Uh, The reason being that I think Democrats correctly perceive a threat (laughs) from Republicans given the events of the post-election period and that the notion that like you have to keep Democrats in charge of at least one branch of Congress or potentially Republicans could uncertify the election. I mean, I think that will motivate Democratic voters to some degree. I think the fact that Trump isn't taking that much of a backseat in Republican politics will motivate Democratic voters to some degree. And so if you have both sides really hyped and ready to turn out in the midterm, then the GP may not maintain the traditional midterm advantage, which especially for Republicans often is about low Democratic turnout traditionally in in midterm years. But again, that's all a hypothesis. I think we do not have the data yet to test that.
1: So I pulled up data from newspaper and TV ratings and subscriptions. And so this was quoted in the Washington Post. It said, the Post saw the number of unique visitors fall 26% from January to February and 7% from a year ago. The New York Times lost 17% compared with January. And then they looked at cable ratings as well. The most deeply affected network is CNN. After surpassing rivals Fox News and MSNBC in January, the network has lost 45% of its primetime audience in the past five weeks, according to Nielsen Media Research. MSNBC's audience has dropped 26% in the same period, and so now Fox News is back up to being the highest-rated network. Does that suggest that Democratic enthusiasm or interest in politics has dropped off to some extent, and it's not just across the board?
0: I mean, not really necessarily. I mean, one is that, in general, the out party, their network, of course— Officially, these networks aren't partisan, but in general, right. if you have Republicans in office, then MSNBC does a lot of anti-Trump programming. When Democrats are in office, Fox do a lot of like anti-Obama programming or anti-Biden, I guess. Although Biden himself is less of a target than various and sundry other Democrats, but it's that's kind of typical in terms of what you would expect. I mean, I also think that like MSNBC and CNN, for reasons that are understandable from a business point of view, and also relatively understandable from a journalism point of view, went very, very hard on the Trump (laughs) bandwagon. And so they kind of have like more of a gap and they have to probably be more creative in how they're filling all those news cycles. I mean, that sounds dumb. I mean, obviously some of the stuff with respect to 1.6 and so forth is still very important and newsworthy, whereas Fox kind of always had a model of, we're going to always have five or six things on the left that we can use to gin up outrage. And there's kind of like an endless supply of those things. I mean, I don't really watch cable news. so one good habit I've maintained. Yeah. But like, I'm sure you have lots of March Taylor Green segments and stuff like that. But I mean, I think Fox News is, has always been good at like, if we use the term slow news day, I think they've been effective at programming on the slow news days. I think MSNBC and CNN, But when Trump always rose to the level of newsworthiness and tended to make their largely Democratic audiences give them plenty to be upset about, they may have to be more creative in how they're maintaining their audiences.
1: So we can't really extrapolate from that voting patterns and things like that. It's too early to answer Chris's question. I think so. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Ariella asks, I would love to hear the pod's take on polling for ranked choice voting elections, especially in New York City 2021. Can we trust the polls, only trust polls that do an RCV ranked choice voting simulation and disregard first choice only polls, assume we can't trust any polling because nobody has enough practice polling RCV elections yet? So, neat. Ariella just wants to know, how should we think of, in particular, New York City mayoral election polling, given that it's going to be a ranked choice voting election for the first time and these kinds of elections are not that common in the U.S.?
0: No, I mean, polling should definitely account for ranked choice voting because if polling is supposed to be a simulation of the actual ballot. And in New York, you can make, I believe, up to five people. And it's material, too. So the, the two best known candidates are Eric Adams, who's a Brooklyn borough president, and Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, entrepreneur. And they are both at about 20%. And then the next tier down is at 10%. So you might think, OK, it's not that hard for someone to like catch fire and they only have to get to twenty. percent percent or 25% or something to be in the lead. But because Adams and Yang are better known, they all tend to have more second and third choice support. Whereas you might say, well, I like Maya Wiley, who's like in fourth place or something, but I've heard of Yang and I've heard of Adams and I probably have at least one of them somewhere on my ballot in some order. And so if you don't account for ranked choice voting, it probably understates the relative strength of Adams's and Yang's position.
1: All right. But as far as when polls do account for ranked choice voting, should we still take their results with a grain of salt just because ranked choice voting is rare and that throws some uncertainty into the mix? Or should we just think of it as any other poll?
0: I mean, there are different ways to do it, right? You can ask people like a lot of polls actually will simulate the ballot, right? So kind of one candidate will drop off and then their support goes to someone else. The problem with that is the exact order in which candidates drop off the ballot there's some uncertainty or randomness there. So if it is more robust, you probably like, instead of doing one simulation, you'd do many simulations with uncertainty. But leaving that aside, I mean, there's not a large enough sample to know, like, are ranked choice polls less accurate overall or more accurate overall. I mean, in theory, ranked choice voting is more robust in the sense that you can't just on kind of a quirk win by one vote. If the other candidate has broader support and they will catch up and overtake you when the other candidates are dropped off in the accounting process. So in theory, that might mean that, that ranked choice polling was a little easier, potentially. But you know, in general, polling in New York, although I think polling has been historically fine in the New York mayoral races, in theory, polling in New York ought to pose like quite a few challenges. A lot of people in New York are bilingual or multilingual and don't necessarily have English as their first language. A lot of people in New York vote in presidential and congressional races, but do not vote in local races. And whether they'll turn out or not is a challenge. In general, polling in primaries is difficult because there aren't as many demographics you can wait by. In a general election, you know that probably the very large majority of Black voters will vote for the Democrat. In a mayoral race, it's a primary. You don't know which of the however many Democrats there are on the ballot that they might vote for necessarily. So you can't wait your way out of like having a mediocre sample and so that's challenging for like polling a primary in New York city in general, but I don't think the ranked choice part inherently makes it more challenging. But pollsters should, they should ask voters to provide up to five candidates. They should, by the way, not require them to list five because not all voters will list five. And there's some strategy maybe you just want to anyway, but like they should try to simulate the ballot process as best as they can.
1: All right. I got some more questions from listeners, but before we get to them, Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. The next question that we received was from Alex, and it's a kind of fun question. So Alex says, the Pentagon has a deadline to produce a big report about UFOs in June. What's the polling on aliens? I looked this up, so I have the actual polling on aliens slash UFOs in front of me. But I'm curious, Nate, if you have a sense of, What percent of Americans believe that the UFOs that have been sighted are actual alien spacecraft?
0: Um, 29%.
1: Ooh, that's pretty close. Okay, so a Gallup poll from 2019. So this is the question. Which comes closer to your view? Some UFOs have been alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or galaxies or All UFO sightings can be explained by human activity on Earth or natural phenomenon. So 33% of U.S. adults say that some are alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or galaxies. 60% say that all can be explained by human activity on Earth or natural phenomenon. And 7% don't have an opinion. So you're pretty close. Yeah. Do you think that there is a partisan divide? And if so, what is it? I would think
0: there is not a huge partisan divide, but that Democrats are a little bit more likely to believe in alien origins for UFOs.
1: Wow. Did you look up this polling before we no. said, like, what are you doing? Okay, no. so 30% of Republicans and 32% of Democrats. Wow. But you have to wonder... Where did that 33% number come from if both of those are under 33%? It's independents. Independents are really into aliens. 38% of independents said that some of the UFOs are alien spacecraft.
0: I remember when I went to a Ron Paul rally, I've been to a couple.
1: In a journalistic capacity?
0: In a journalistic capacity. I think that population would have a high belief in aliens.
1: Well, I guess the data shows it. Although that's kind of a more specific question, the one that we addressed here, which is like the UFOs that we have been talking about over the past couple years, if they're alien spacecraft, if you ask Americans if they believe that there is life on other planets, where do you think that number is?
0: I would think around 60%. Do think that?
1: Wait, what is going on? It's 60% (laughs) according to a recent interest poll. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: i'm galen we need to have like the estimation game our abc news bosses should go on tv you know the estimation game just who's good at estimating
1: yeah wait isn't that the Prices right sort of yeah just kind of like a beefed up like prices right like make it a little more modern a little more zippy give it like a data science data journalism edge yeah. you know like include some politics culture whatever not just have like items that you would find yeah okay when are you free let's talk about this
0: the estimation game which is a much better title than that but yeah
1: listeners if you have any ideas for a name for the estimation game send them in okay if you get this then it's game over i'm leaving this podcast is over (laughs) this poll was written up everywhere but i couldn't actually find the original poll so we're just going to roll with it consider this a bad use of polling but it's the answer that is funny that counts. Okay, so in a UK poll of 2000 British adults, in the event of an alien invasion, which public figure would be most fit to lead the world? Which public, when was this poll taken? It's from this year, 2021. Elon Musk? Hmm, I think that's like recency bias. I think it's recency bias. Queen Elizabeth? I mean, they're very loyal. The Brits are very loyal. No, it was actually Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: I understand that choice. I would think Queen Elizabeth might be pretty interesting.
1: You have to think, they're not polling politics nerds or whatever. The people who came up were Bruce Willis, Tom Cruise, Sigourney Weaver.
0: People understand they're actors, right?
1: Donald Trump actually ranked eighth, eighth place. Joe Biden was 20th. Kamala Harris was nineteenth. Angela Merkel. I mean, she'd be. I'd, I'd probably go- take Merkel. Again, I couldn't find the original polls. So I'm just reading a write up from Deadline. But Angela Merkel is not ranked on here. Piers Morgan is though. He's number thirteen. I think people just have a sense that if aliens are invading, they want someone who has a little crazy to lead the fight in response. I'm not. I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, I mean, their vaccine rollout was pretty good. Okay, so that was fun, but Luke is going to take us back into some less fun, more serious territory. Luke says, I'm interested in possible electoral college realignments. Can you elaborate on the growing power of states in the South and West and how Sunbelt states, for the most part, seem to be growing more Democratic-leaning while Midwestern states shift right? It's a pretty broad-based question. I think this maybe follows up on some of our conversations surrounding the census, And we've asked this question before, but in this potential trade-off where the Midwest is shifting right, but it seems faster than the South and Southwest are shifting left, is this a better trade-off for one party or the other?
0: It kind of depends on Texas and Florida being the most populous of the Sunbelt states. Currently, the electoral math, the Electoral College popular vote gap is getting bigger for, for Democrats. Because having all these, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, all these states have quite a few electoral votes. And the fact that, like, Democrats are no longer assured of winning them, or they might be actually to the right of the country overall, they just have more electoral votes than Georgia and Arizona do, which are the two kind of big prizes that Democrats did win in the sub Belt in 2020. If North Carolina, which Obama won once but not twice, were to shift and become more blue, that would even the score a little bit. But it's really about Texas and Florida and the fact that they have enormous numbers of electoral votes are getting more electoral votes and they're both still red-leaning Texas less so than before but still red-leaning Florida more so than before. Those two states are what currently makes the Democrats' electoral map pretty hard. And as much as Democrats might be thrilled with Georgia, and Georgia's growing too, right, in Arizona, that's not a great trade for all the Midwest basically becoming more competitive.
1: Yeah. Lewis follows up on this question. If trends continue, when are we going to see Texas, quote unquote, in play for Democrats? Wow. The enduring question, Lewis.
0: I mean, it depends. I mean, I think Texas's change is very migration driven. I mean, so historically, people kind of overrate momentum, if you will. If a state goes from being very Republican to reddish-purple, people kind of naturally assume that the next step is it becomes truly purple. And there are examples like that, like Virginia, which now is no longer even purple, it's blue, or Colorado. But empirically, there are just as many examples of a state that looks as though it's going to shift and then and then the momentum stops. You know, North Carolina is actually a good example of that, where Obama won it, but then it got stuck there and has not voted for Democrat president since. And so people shouldn't necessarily assume that Texas is going to get more purple. There are pathways for it to do so. If you have Biden recover among Hispanic Democrats, but hold his gains among white and Asian suburban Democrats and urban Democrats, then then Biden could win Texas. But there's no particular guarantee of that. Maybe in Florida in 2020, Cuban-Americans don't have the same affinity for the GOP nominee if it's not Trump or DeSantis, say, in 2020 as they did or in 2024, as it did for Trump, and so maybe Florida would be a better place for Democrats. But there's also the, the level two of like of immigration patterns, and there's been an acceleration of migration to the Sun Belt during COVID. It may accelerate more if people have more flexible working arrangements. Where generally speaking, it's cheaper down there. If you like warmer weather, then you might see advantages there as well. But what's interesting is like there's maybe some self-selection in the migration process. I think the typical Liberal northerner now thinks of Florida as this MAGA Florida man backwater. They're mad. Always kind of votes Republican. I think of Texas as emerging purple state that will be the next Georgia. And Austin is cool, right? And like Texas is diverse. I mean, if you kind of break that down, I mean, like Florida is exceptionally diverse too. I mean, I've been spending more time in Miami lately and like Miami is, I think, even ahead of New York for like what percentage of the population of Miami is foreign born. But the fact that like Miami codes as being in Florida in general, I should say, especially codes as being purple or red, that Florida has policies that are perceived as pro-business, that has no state income tax, that is kind of perceived as kind of a free-for-all, more libertarian state, whether that's true or not, that can become self-fulfilling. People who choose to migrate to Florida are selecting themselves a bit on the basis of political ideology. And liberals might therefore move to Georgia or or even Texas or Arizona or something instead.
1: I think the reasons that people move to are somewhat different. I guess these are just personal anecdotes, but Texas has a lot of large, quickly growing cities. Doesn't it have four or five of the 10 largest cities in America and so a lot of young college educated people are moving there for jobs in these big cities. Florida is not a state of big cities. The state of like sprawling suburbs and towns and things like that that attract an older skewing population. That's been the case for a long time though, right? I mean
0: sort I mean Florida's quite urban. I've been spending more time on Florida lately. I think liberals have a lot of incorrect stereotypes of Florida. Florida used to be maybe one point more Republican than the country as a whole, often at the tipping point. Now, all of a sudden, Biden lost Florida by, what, two or three points in an election where he won the popular vote by four or five points. So it's like a six or seven point gap now at the tipping point. I mean, that's a big problem for, for Democrats. And so whether you see Florida as sui generis, because you have this Cuban and Latin American population that may have connotations of Socialism, right? And that's maybe not what you would see among the Hispanic population in Texas or something, for example. But like I think Democrats should be more concerned about Florida. I mean, if you have like a regression model where you're like, okay, tell me population density, the racial composition of the electorate, you know, and so forth, but not anything about the political culture, it would think, oh, Florida must be like a the very least a purple state leaning blue, right? Because it's like very racially mixed and it's pretty dense and urban Uh, it's coastal right it has coastal amenities but it's not it's now a red-leaning state as much as it ever has been and like it's because people are it has a unique political culture but i think as i mentioned this democrats do actually have some interesting candidates for florida offices in 2022 so val demings who is a congresswoman from orlando who was on the shortlist to be biden's presidential nominee is going to run for senate against marco rubio so there is this bench of Democrats that's getting a little bit more serious there, but yeah, that's a big part of the problem for Democrats. Is that it's a ton of electoral votes and it's becoming more red, and it cuts against this general Democrats becoming more competitive in the Sun Belt.
1: All right, we have just a couple more questions that we're going to get to. We have plenty of others that we can save for the next time we play twenty questions. So
0: twenty questions was an oversell,
1: although in total, I guess you, yeah. some listeners can okay. count them up. There were a lot of follow-ups. I think we might have gotten to twenty. Yeah. I thought this was a good question. What is one factor shaping public opinion that doesn't get enough attention?
0: I mean, I've always thought that it's a very traditional answer, that religion is understudied. You know, when you run a logistic regression model or something, you input a bunch of variables. say so you take some giant YouGov survey, where they interview 60,000 Americans, they ask them all about the demographic characteristics, and they, then they ask people, who'd you vote for? Democrat, Republican variables having to do with people's church attendance or their religious affiliation are often quite predictive, as predictive as anything except race often. And I mean, I'm not religious myself, but like there is a huge gap between how many journalists are religious and how many members of the American population are religious, even with religion very significantly declining. But it's still a pretty big gap. And if you go back and look at political commentary from a few generations ago, it would talk a lot about the Catholic vote and so forth. Now you don't get very much of that. And I think religion is something which is an underrated variable in political analysis.
1: We actually did a podcast on this somewhat recently where we talked about the growing number of people who don't affiliate and that there's a significant difference between people who are agnostic, atheist, and nothing in particular and that nothing in particular is now like a third of the American public. I mean, does like a falling religious affiliation make polling harder in some ways because you can't use that as a way to distinguish how people might vote?
0: I would prefer to talk to someone who had done more scholarship in this area. But like, I mean, even stuff like 10 or, or 15 years ago, there was a big capital A atheist movement with like Richard Dawkins and like kind of Sam Harris and like all these liberal intellectuals who are now maybe not seen as that liberal <laughs> anymore. And instead it's just people who are just aren't talking about religion very much at all. So that's that's interesting how it's kind of become diffused in a great many respects. I mean, also when you talk about the voters of color, some of the differences among voters of color, we talk about how they're not monolithic, but like a lot of that has to do with like religious orientation and stuff like that. And that gets under discussed, I think, as well.
1: All right. So, moving on to our penultimate question from Ned. How soon is it too soon to start talking about the 2024 election?
0: It's never too soon. I mean, it's going to be an important election. You can talk about it now. Is that going to be good for your mental health? Probably not. But you can you can talk about it now.
1: I put all <laughs> of the 2024 questions in a column and said that we're not going to talk about them for now. Maybe on our next 20 questions we'll get to them. But fair enough. Final question. What is the over under on the number of pages in Nate Silver's new book?
0: I mean, counting footnotes and like that, just the page count on amazon.com or whichever, whichever retailer you choose to purchase the book from. I think the over under is like 380.
1: 380. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's like a pretty safe number, right?
0: My previous book was longer. It's Some number that is not exactly 538 pages was pretty close to it. I should have tried to make it 538. Darn. And this book is supposed to be a little bit more compact and and shorter. The first book was like 110,000 words with lots and lots and lots of end notes and end material. And that's just like, that's a very long book. And so I don't think I need to write as long. I mean, one thing, again, to the little inside baseball here, right? With the first book, I kind of said like a whole bunch of topic areas I wanted to explore, 20 topics, you wind up writing about 13 of them. This is much more like I have chosen the subjects I want to write about. I don't know what I'll have to say about them, but I have much more of a deliberate blueprint for it. And I think that would tend to make it shorter and the goals for it to be a little bit more short and sweet. But if you were to talk to any of my editors here at 538,
1: they would tell you. They would
0: know empirically that Nate estimated word counts need to be, there's a fudge factor. Where they tend to be underestimated relative to the actual story that comes in. There's a lot of like slacking Sarah or Micah at, at one in the morning, being like, you know, this story is 4,000 words and it's kind of only half done so far. But, you know, I'm trying to rein that in.
1: All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bittigary Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. For real, if you have a question or thoughts or you want to contribute to the naming of this sh- segment or show, email us, podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.